Welcome to the first season of the Astrid and You Brand Lab podcast, where we will get a sneak peek into iconic brands through their founders and leaders. We will talk about their personal and professional backgrounds and also talk about various current issues they stand behind. I am your host, Ani Nam, founder of Astrid and You. This week, we're playing an interview I recorded weeks ago with David Abramovich, founder of the cult coffee brand Grind. He talks to me about everything from how he founded Grind in his dad's old phone shop, the accidental story behind the iconic pink branding, his philosophy on coffee, and how he constantly innovates. Since our recording, he is now father of a beautiful baby girl. So congratulations, David. Please note that this is a virtual recording, so the sound quality may be affected. Thank you so much for um, being on the podcast with me. And obviously, we've been doing a lot of research about you, so I feel like I know you already. Um, oh, what have you, <laughs> so what have you found out? A lot of good things, actually, and a, a bit of Instagram stalking, including your wife's Instagram account, which are, the girls <laughs> in the office are obsessed with. Um, so it's <laughs> so good to finally meet you, albeit virtually. Um, it sounds like Grind Coffee was born very organically from what I read and what I've heard with your friend who was a DJ out of your dad's old phone shop. How lucky is that? Can you tell me more about the initial journey of the setup? Yeah, sure. Yeah, no, it was, it was very, very organic. And um, I think, you know, as, as is so often the case with these stories, it was kind of the last thing I expected to find myself doing. But um I, I founded a tech business while I was still at uni with a friend and we raised quite a lot of venture capital and I, I was very focused on, uh, on growing that business. Um, mm. but, it, but in parallel to that, um, yeah, unfortunately my dad got, got sick and passed away quite unexpectedly um, when I was 25. So uh, as kind of part of the aftermath of that, I you know, realized that I'd inherited his phone business, um, which was basically, um, by that point was just, um, just down to one single kind of mobile phone retail store. And I didn't want to take that business over because, you know, it was kind of getting to the point where everyone was just buying iPhones then anyway. And there wasn't really, there wasn't really that much value to be added in a, in a high street mobile phone store. Um, you know, this was 2011, but the building itself was, and still is, um, yeah, a really cool building on right on Old Street Roundabout. Um, you know, a little circular building that kind of stands on its own right on the edge of the roundabout. It's very unique. Mm. And, you know, today it looks like an amazing location. But in 2010, it looked like a strange location because kind of, you know, Silicon Roundabout hadn't really happened then. And, you know, there's been this huge gravitation towards the east of London with the Olympics in 2012 and Shoreditch mm -hmm. becoming where everyone kind of wanted to be. But listen, that, that had started to happen then for sure, but it wasn't quite as obvious as it yeah, is now. Yeah, I, yeah, I remember I, I first came to London in 2009 and I felt like that, that bit was a bit grimy compared to West London. Yeah, it was. But now it's I mean, like I, so much fuller. Yeah, I mean, I, I used to work in that store as as you know, as a teenager, which would have been, you know, in the early 2000s. Um, and, you know, it was like a summer job helping out my dad. And, and back then it was like, 
you got off at Liverpool Street Station and you walked through this like awful streets and then eventually you found your way to the, to the shop on Old Street. You know, it was just so different then. Um, but, you know, I think I was, I was very, you know, you know, the shop was quiet and still is, you know, very sentimental to me. And, and I knew that I wasn't going to give it back. You know, we had a very long lease um, and I didn't want to give it up. Um, but I also didn't, I also didn't want it to be a phone shop. So basically just kind of looked at the building and where it was and thought, you know, I think this could be a cool coffee shop. Um, mm. and, and that, and that kind of was the, that was the beginnings of the whole thing. And then I, I started working on it and I started thinking about what to do. And, um, yeah, a friend of mine, Kaz, who's a DJ from Melbourne asked to, asked to get involved. So he became an investor, um, and, you know, helped me to open the first one. And it was very much about bringing that kind of Melbourne style coffee shop, um, but then adapt, then adapting it for the London audience, you know, and people had done that already back then. Yeah. But, and what, wh- why did you decide on a coffee shop at that time? It's a, it's a huge shift from being in a tech, being a tech entrepreneur, obviously. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I just, it just felt like what the building should be. And, and I'd actually, I'd actually discussed it with my dad a little bit as well about maybe one day it could be like a coffee shop and a wine bar um, because it was a cool site. But it, yeah, in the end, it ended up being kind of coffee and cocktails. Um, but yeah, it just, it just, it was purely driven. You know, I did not, I didn't know anything about coffee then. I didn't, uh, you know, I'd barely ever made a coffee. Like I didn't, I, I didn't know, it, it, there was no burning desire to, you know, open a coffee shop or I didn't have this big passion for coffee. It just felt like the obvious use for it. Yeah. You just had a gut feeling that it should be a coffee shop. Yeah. And it just, it felt like the, it felt like the right use for the building to be kind of a meeting, a meeting spot um, because it's right outside the station. Yeah. Amazing. And when I look at your branding, it's so on trend and on the mark with the millennials. But um, as a coffee enthusiast, I personally think your coffee is amazing. And I've been ordering your coffee um, for my work from home coffee machine um, since the lockdown. Good, so thank can you. you <laughs> you're welcome. And can you, can you tell us a bit about how you went about sourcing the right coffee, um, how you chose the ro- roasters, et cetera? Because you just told me that, you know, you weren't a coffee enthusiast. You knew nothing about coffee. How did you go about that? Yeah, I mean, we, we uh, at the, right at the start, we, the one thing that I was really clear on was that I wanted it to be our own coffee. You know, I didn't, when we first started opening, you know, we had no money and we'd have people come in from the local roasteries, you know, every day almost saying, you know, take our coffee, we will, we'll give you a free machine, we'll give you free training. And actually, when you've got no money and you're still in the building site, that's quite, um, that's quite attractive. But we were very keen to have our own blend because I just didn't really want to, I didn't really get why we would cover the shelves in someone else's brand rather than building out our own brand. So basically we, basically we just talked to people until we found someone who was willing to, to white label for us. And then we, uh, and then we developed, developed the kind of the first version of our house blend. And, And the main thing was, I think the specialty coffee scene tends to be uh, obviously run by people who are really into coffee Um, and people who are really into coffee don't necessarily reflect the tastes of your average flat white drinker from Shoreditch Grime. You know, they, they all drink espresso only, 
but you know in reality 90% of our drinks are served with milk so you know they design these quite specialty often quite floral delicate blends which taste great as espresso but then as soon as you put milk in them they get completely lost so like uh, you know we were keen that it was you know a proper cup of coffee and you could taste the caffeine and and then you know just going for that chocolate kind of nutty flavors that that we think that everyone loves and you know we've gone we've come so far from then in terms of that was you know we were buying you know 10 kilos or 20 kilos a week probably when we first started from someone else now now we have a huge coffee roastery where it goes into all different products for for our stores for at home for soho house stores glo- uh, soho house locations globally but but you know fundamentally even though the scale has changed loads we've barely changed the initial kind of house blend. It stayed pretty much the same from day one. So, and I think that was one of the things that that was one of the small list of things that we got right alongside the giant list of things that we got wrong. Yeah. That's amazing how you thought about the customer when you approach coffee rather than from, I guess, a product specialist point of view, I guess that's why your coffees always have consistency, whichever outlet. I go into. I'm glad you say that because we are we're obsessed with consistency. Obsessed. Yeah, it's so it's so important as a customer yeah. because as a fan, like if I went into one grind shop and had a different experience from another, it would really deter me me to from going to you know another a third location of grind. So I think it's Agreed. so important. Yeah, yeah. And how? Um, I mean, your your brand is obviously so on point. It's very similar to ours. You have the millennial pink. You have the font. Um, how did you go about building the brand? Is this what it looked like when you first started, or did it evolve? Who um, did the branding for you? Yeah, no, it's um, it's evolved loads over the years. Um, we've done it all ourselves in house. Um, you know, the first thing, the first thing was a, was a shortage grind logo, which we had one of the baristas at the time actually just knocked up, you know, and we chose oh, that's out of amazing. loads. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, you know, obviously as we started to expand, we kind of, we still have the individual store logos, but we, you know, mainly focused around the central grind logo, which is just, you know, which is just grind in some block text. And then mm-hmm. we introduced the, when we did our first crowdfunding campaign, which was I think 2015, um, yeah. we kind of had to we kind of had to come up with a color um, because you know you kind of need it because we were doing these big posters in train stations yeah. and yeah. and you, you have to come up with a color and we didn't really have a color um, and we settled on we had this image of um, a cup of coffee on a on a marble table you know one of our red cups on our white marble mm. table which is kind of like our signature look and then there was the reflection of a, of a, one of our neon signs in the marble table and it kind of it kind of created this pink color in part of the image and we literally just used a color picker and grabbed that as we were playing you know on photoshop with different colors and we thought oh that pink looks really good let's go with that and then you know at some point around that time i think lots of other people did a similar thing and then it then it became known <laughs> as kind of millennial pink so yeah um, yeah i love yeah. how like yeah i love how everything you did was so organic and so candid and you're not so precious about it yeah it's super organic and, and the brand continues to evolve you know um and i think i think it has to i think as soon as it stands still it will die right but yeah you know it, ha- it has to continue to evolve and obviously now it's evolving um, you know, to, to primarily become an at-home brand because of 
you know, because of the opportunities there and, and because of because of COVID in particular. So, you know, that means looking at everything again. Yeah, I mean, you, you just mentioned, um, you know, evolution and growth into home coffee and everything. So how did your strategic directions change after COVID and lockdown? Because I read somewhere at home brewing is around 40% of your revenues now, as opposed to the coffee shops. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, about that. Yeah, which is crazy because it was about 1%. It was 1% in January. So, um, oh my goodness. Yeah, it's been, you know, it's been a huge, an area of of just, you know, insane levels of growth and, and a huge focus for us. I mean, luckily, luckily we started investing and we started building this seriously about 18 months ago. So, you know, new website and big new roastery and, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of big new machines and machinery to make the different parts of it. And, you know, then we started with the marketing stuff. So it's been a long journey into, you know, it was a long journey and a lot of investment to get to the point where we could have that crazy growth. You know, it wasn't something that we just flipped or switch overnight yeah, because yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's much more, it's much more complex than that, you know, with fulfillment and packaging and the different products and the website and conversion and all these other things. So yeah, and a lot of a lot of product research and development as well. You know, our our, our key product obviously is our compostable Nespresso pods, and you know, trying to get something in a pod that tastes as close as it's possible for it to taste to a coffee in our store took took a huge amount of of work and, and development as well. So, but you know, we were very fortunate with the timing that um, that all of this kind of you know literally wasn't until. February that we finally had the last pieces of equipment and you know the supply chain ready to go and and literally you know then COVID hit a month later and things went crazy so (laughs) yeah and and, I mean I was going to ask the same question whether you were being reactive to the lockdown or whether you were planning this but I guess you asked me you you answered the question but did this did the lockdown in a way accelerate the launch of these products yeah, definitely. We, yeah. you know, it, it accelerated. Well, all of the products were launched, but it just accelerated the whole project. So basically, you know, once we'd closed down the stores, 100%, well, okay, not 100% because there's still plenty of stuff to deal with, like banks mm-hmm. and rent yeah. and staff. And, but, you know, as much energy as possible from the core team that, that weren't furloughed, you, you know, we diverted basically all energy into Grind at Home. And that meant, you know, the brand team that were normally focused on the restaurant suddenly diverted everything into our website, our emails, our subscription journey, all of that stuff. So I think it was more about just, you know, we luckily we had all the, the main, we'd already done the main steps, but then yeah. we just put as much energy as possible. You know, and in those early few weeks, we were seriously hustling just to stay in stock you, you know yeah, no, business, no business yeah. is prepared for sales to grow 50 times overnight yeah. which is what which is wow. what happened so That's you know amazing. we rented congratulations yeah no thank you well look i mean it was we, we were very lucky to be able to to do that and as i said we were lucky with the timings but you know we were renting we were renting vans to go and collect pallets of product from places because there was no way to get them because like supply chains, supply chains like broke down. So, you know, mm. we had 50,000 tins stuck in Portsmouth that had come from China and 
we had to go get them ourselves so that we could put coffee in them so we could sell them. So it was a proper like startup <laughs> hustle yeah, again. Yeah. Which was a change which was a change of pace. Yeah, which is a change of pace. <laughs> yeah, because, definitely. Yeah. Did you um did you as an entrepreneur, did you secretly enjoy the lockdown and the crisis? Because I certainly did, um, in a weird way, because you know, like as a very early startup in the first year, I had to do everything. Everything was about firefighting. And then we were getting to that stage where we're bit mature. And, you know, a lot of the things that I had to do was team management and motivating team and things like that. And then all of a sudden crisis came and I had to do things. Did you um, secretly enjoy that, David? Yeah, look, I think, I think if we'd only had the online side of our business, I definitely would have. Um, yeah. I think the, the, you know, the problem was that they, it came with, you know, the, the exciting, scrappy, hustling, doing everything growth came alongside, you know, a restaurant business, which we spent 10 years building, yeah, being closed down overnight. And, you know, and that meant 300 people on furlough. And then yeah. ult- ultimately, you know, ultimately a decent chunk of those people having to leave the business or being made mm. redundant and like, lots of very difficult conversations with landlords and, um, you know, because clearly it's been a challenge for everyone to, to pay rent when, when sites are closed. And yeah, so of course. I think, yeah, look, absolutely. Like part of it, I think, I think, I think, you know, we're probably wired to kind of slightly enjoy the chaos and the, yeah. the firefighting a little bit. So, but yeah, it was, it was definitely, it was kind of a tale of two halves about, you know, yeah, despair, yeah, on one, despair on one side and then something really exciting on the other side. Yeah, of course. But despite the challenges, I've seen you guys doing so many good things like, you know, giving NHS workers free coffee and everything. How did, um, did this have a lasting impact on your thoughts around giving back to community at all? Um, I mean, I think it just felt like the very obvious thing to do to mm. me, given everything that was going on yeah. in the same way that, you know, in the same way that we would never have products if they weren't compostable. And we would always use compostable coffee cups and we would always use, you know, coffee from farms where we're paying them, you know, way above fair trade prices. But I think, I think for a brand like us, that stuff's a hygiene factor. You know, it's not something we scream from the rooftops about because, I think it's kind of just expected that we would behave mm. like that. And so, mm. you know, we, we've always taken the approach of, you know, we're not going to scream from the rooftops that, that we're the most amazing, most eco, most, you know, charitable company ever because every business could always do more. But let's just do as much as we can, um, uh, as much as we can when we can and just try and continually improve that. So, you know, we just started offset, offsetting all the carbon from, um, our shipping for our grind at home products and things like that. But, you know, I think it's just about, I think you've got to do the right things because I think, I think your staff expect it. And I think the customers expect it as well, particularly when you're dealing with a kind of a young urban millennial audience, you know, those things are just expected of us as brands. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I love how you're doing so many great things, but you're so humble about it. And so matter of fact about it. And when I listen to you, um, I mean, through interviewing you right now, but through other podcasts or about reading about you, you just sound like a no-nonsense kind of guy and you just um, make everything sound so effortless and um, so matter-of-fact. But I, I'm wondering whether this had anything to do with your upbringing because your dad was an entrepreneur. Can you tell us more 
more about that? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I just think, I think people overcomplicate stuff a lot. And I think people, you know, starting a business is, is just about getting on with it, right? Like 99% of it is just getting on with it. And I think, I think so many people just, they live in a world where they want to intellectualize everything and plan every possible scenario and mitigate every risk. And, you know, I have people call me for advice and they're like, how can I raise money? How can I protect my IP, I'm really worried that once I launch, this person's going to copy me. I'm like, like, what? like listen, what are you yeah, raising no money cares. for? Like, no one cares. Like, no one cares. Go get a credit Just card and, you know, spend your first £10,000 and prove that it's a thing. And then let's talk about raising money. And then let's talk yeah. about protecting IP because everyone's got a thousand ideas. You just got to get on with it. Um, yeah, yeah. That's such yeah, good, good advice. Yeah, I, I think, I think definitely definitely my dad taught me taught me those things and my mum and you you know I think it's just about getting on with it and about not worrying necessarily too much about um, you know crossing every I and dotting every T and just kind of trusting your instinct getting on with it and then look you don't get you don't get everything right like we've made so many mistakes but you just have to get it right more often than you get it wrong basically. Yeah, that's so true. And despite all these um, nonsense approach and, you know, you, you attribute a lot of things to luck as we speak and a lot of things to, you know, just doing it. But from an outset, Grind seems very much like a strategically driven business um, from what I see anyways. How has that changed over time? Do you have more strategies in place? Do you do a lot more thinking and team building and things like that now that the business is bigger? Um, yeah, look, I mean, it, it was, I always say that I think the key strength at the beginning was the fact that it wasn't something that was dreamt up by a lot of old men in a boardroom somewhere or corporate, you know, it was the opposite to that. It was, let's do this, let's do this because we think it's cool. Oh, do you know what? We think we should add cocktails because we're kicking everyone out at 6 p.m. So let's give them a cocktail. Which cocktail should we do? Um, these five. Okay, cool. You know, it was uh, and, then, and then the next thing was, you know, oh, we should do some food. Okay, let's do some food. You know, it was very, very, very reactive and organic and just based on, based on customer demand. Obviously, you know, as you mature, we've raised quite a lot of money now. We've had a lot of investment. We've, we've, you know, we've invested in a lot of assets. So you have to become a little bit more, a little bit more strategic. And, and look, along the way, we've, along the way we've, we've made mistakes and we've invested in things that haven't worked. But, you know, I think, I think we're still, you know, we're still at the stage where we can be pretty entrepreneurial. And obviously, no matter how, no matter how much strategy we had, you know, everyone's strategies went out the window in January, February, right? As we went into this lockdown. You know, <laughs> exactly. Whatever your business plan said for 2020, I bet it didn't say this, um, you know, for everyone, right? So I think it's really, it's really important that you can still be kind of nimble enough to adapt but you know i think we're very i think we're very set strategically now on on what we want to do which is you know to keep growing our high street presence but to focus to focus much more energy into the at home space because you know no matter what happens there's a there's a there's a large opportunity we believe to to grow that and to 
you know, give people a much better choice for to have a high quality coffee at home because the choices are relatively limited at the moment. Yeah, is going into Soho House and going into hospitality one of the um, strategic pillars as well? Because I, I went to Soho Farmhouse um, a few weeks ago with my husband and I've um, spotted your really pretty pink pods there and um, I was really excited to see them. Yeah, no, it's um, it's a really exciting deal with them. So we, we supply, we now supply the coffee globally that is used in the houses so you know when you have a when you have a flat white in the restaurant it's ours if you have an espresso martini it's got our coffee in it and then yeah there's um our pink tins are in every hotel room globally as well so you know we we are not intending to be a wholesale business you know we're very much a retail brand and you know having a relationship directly with the customer is is what we're all about so a house is you know we've been friends with the guys there for a long time and it's just an amazing way to get our brand in front of their, you know, 120,000 members globally. I've certainly, you know, as a, you know, as a very regular visitor to Shoreditch House, which I live next door to for, you know, 15 years now, and then lots of their other locations around the world, I'm certainly been, you know, very influenced by, by them. And, you know, any brands that you see there kind of immediately, you, you know, I think that adds credibility to a brand. So that's what we're trying to do, really, just help help position us as, you know, the authority on, on coffee for, for that certain kind of yeah. demographic. Yeah. Would you be expanding that to other hotel chains or hospitality? Is that in the pipeline as well? Yeah, look, I think anything that is strategically um, kind of additive in terms of brand. So... You know, we're working with Brewdog now, so they have our pods in all of their pubs um, across the UK and Europe. And yeah, look, I think we're talking to some other hotel brands. I think we will never do it just for the sake of doing it. Um, there, it. It needs to be a brand that we like or that we love because, you know, we don't want to be a wholesale business and we don't want grind coffee to be everywhere. You know, we want grind coffee to be really special. So you need to only be able to get it from us or in places that we think will do justice to the, to the coffee and we'll take it seriously, which is why, you know, which is why so house is so, was such an obvious partner for us because they already took it really seriously. They have exactly the same equipment in all of the houses as we use in the grind. So it means we can train them and, and the product can be, you know, the product can be as good as it is in the grinds. Whereas yeah. I, I'm not interested in giving it to, restaurants where they're not going to take it seriously and you're going to get a grind coffee and then it's going to be a bad cup of coffee because you know people tend to blame the beans even though it's as much about the machines and the barista as everything else people mm. people tend to blame the beans so we'll only do it when we believe that the person serving it is going to do a great job yeah and you just mentioned that at home will be a majority of your strat strategic pillars but are you thinking of opening up more coffee shops or um i guess your lifestyle retail outlets yeah, definitely. Um, we will do. I think the question at the moment is is when. You know, clearly we had um, we had a pipeline of sites which we which we've pressed pause on for the time being. And you know, I think I think when will it make sense to invest? You know, seven figures of money into a physical high street location again. I think there's a big question mark around that at the moment. You know, it certainly doesn't make sense to do that today because. You can't even go there until after 10 p.m. and you can't go in more than groups of six. And, you know, and also no one's even coming into central London. You know, footfall is still 10 or 20 percent of what it was. So 
you know, it, it would be it would be crazy to go take on a store and put all that money into it right now. I think we certainly, you know, we're not at the point where we've opened the last physical store ever, not at all. But you know, I could I could easily see it being a couple of years until we get back into expansion mode on the high street, just because of you know so much uncertainty. Yeah, of course. But in the ballpark, where do you see Grind going? Because uh, you've obviously expanded into lifestyle aside from coffee, you've been doing cocktails, brunches. Um, what's your ultimate vision in like, I guess, five to 10 years? Um, I see us as becoming, you know, the world's coolest coffee brand, basically. And, you know, I think we'll have international stores for sure in key cities, you know, probably near a lot of the, the Kiso house locations because they're the obvious yeah. places for us to go anyway. So, mm. you know, New New York, LA, Berlin, and then I think, you know, potentially setting up setting up roasting locally in those locations and, and using kind of using our retail presence and our and our so house relationship to then start start building our at home at home sales in in all of those regions. But yeah, you know, what's what's so exciting about the Nespresso pods for us is that it's, you know, it's a true alternative to Nespresso's own pods, you, you know, and mm. there's a huge number of these machines globally, you know, one in three households in the UK has one, but you, you know, there's not an obvious alternative to their own pods. Um, yeah, and obviously, you no, know, that's so true. Yeah, their pods come with, you know, 29,000 of their pods going to landfill every minute, mm. um, which is an astonishing number. But ours are compostable, ours have organic coffee, and, you know, they taste much better. So we think there's a really exciting opportunity to create a proper alternative to, to Nespresso um, and to continue, you know, continue building our credibility through, through the high street retail. That's so exciting. And are you developing a machine as well or machines? Oh, oh, top, top, can't top say, secret. I couldn't possibly say. <laughs> All right, I gotcha. Possibly say. <laughs> gotcha. And I mean, despite many hipster flat white outlets popping up in London in the last, um, I guess, 10 years or so, Grind does definitely stand out. What do you think is um, your secret ingredients and what do you actively do to stay, stay ahead from the competition? Um, do you know what we've we've always invested a lot into store design, and I think it's, I think that's been a crucial part of of growing the brand and you know getting the traction that we've had as a brand has been has been about you know firstly it's been about designing amazing looking stores and probably spending more pe- more than most people and you know there's there's lots of touches that we have like the marble like the neon signs that make it a really distinctive atmosphere. Then the music is really important. You know, we have our own recording studio. We work really hard on on the music and the playlist, and that's a big part of the experience. And then, you know, then the team and the product. You know, we we tried to keep the product really simple, really accessible, well priced, and just consistently very good. You know, flat white, smashed avocado, poached eggs, or a burger, or a chicken dish. You know, nothing too complicated. You know, an amazing espresso martini, but just the kind of stuff that you want to have three, four times a week. You know, we, we're not, we're not a once a week place. We're a, well, at least pre COVID anyway, you know, lots of our customers used to come five, even 10 times a week, obviously every day for coffee, but then also some days for breakfast, sometimes for weekend brunch. You know, we want it to be that kind of that, 
that additional space that you could come to. In a lot of ways, Starbucks created that in terms of the third place that wasn't work and wasn't home. This was kind of the evolution. This was the evolution of that into much larger spaces where as well as coffee, you could have food all the time and you could have cocktails. So no, I think I think it's you know a combination of delivering on products and service and also you know making something that was visually appealing and w- was credible as well you know and i think you know when we started the idea the word instagrammable hadn't even been coined i don't think you know that didn't even exist um i think we were part of a kind of early wave of, of businesses that lent themselves nicely to that which which i think helped but we're really keen and i'm personally very keen to always stay on the kind of credible side of that not the not the fad side of that you know i think there's so many you know flower walls and nonsense stuff that was just <laughs> yeah. it, it, it was designed for instagram you know our stores are designed to look good in real life they're not just designed to photograph well and they're designed to work well as well and be be functional practical spaces you know not have you know, things inside which are literally just put there for a photo opportunity, like, because that, I find that, like, to me, that's not cool. Yeah, I mean, it it definitely doesn't feel gimmicky when I walk into a grind shop. It definitely feels very functional, but also beautiful. So it sounds like a, like, perfect trifecta of really strong brands and design and also really strong products and a really agile team. So um, personally, where do you spend more energy on, the brand or the product? Um, these days, the brand for sure. Um, mm. I mean, I think, you know, we are, we're very well built out as a team now. So, you know, I have an amazing ops director who runs the restaurant business. We have an amazing creative director with a, with a team who runs the brand. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's about spending time with them and just making sure the ship is going in the right direction, making sure those guys have, have what they need to to do a great job right because they're, they're better than me at all of those individual things yeah. um it's just about kind of for me it's about making sure the whole thing kind of still knits together and, and, and goes together particularly as we as we diverge into two halves of, of restaurant and at home you know it's tying that together and then yeah just you know keeping the team motivated and excited and, and pointing in the right direction basically so much about business is just actually getting stuff done and like doing the whole doing the whole of the job and doing the last five percent as well like it's all about execution you know everyone thinks you need an amazing idea or you need you know your your business is an iteration on many other businesses that have come before it right and so is and so is mine it's just about iterating and, and executing it's not really about having amazing, unless you're going to invent Facebook, you you know, there's not that many, there's not that many new ideas get invented every day, but there's lots of great businesses that get born just out of executing and iterating on something that someone else has done many times before. Yeah. And it sounds like um, uh, from your upbringing, you, your mom and your dad were a good team. Um, Can you tell us about your teamwork with your wife, who is also a (laughs) makeup artist who our, um, you know, our team are obsessed with? Um, yeah, no, she's, she's amazing. Yeah, no, I think, I think having, I think it would be difficult to have, um, you know, to be, to be married to someone who was in a very rigid nine to five, because that's just not, 
that's just not the reality of having your own business and working for yourself. Um, and you know, she gets that as well. And, um, yeah, look, I think, I think, I think we are a good team. I think, you know, she has the, she has the creative brain, you know, she's effectively an artist and yeah. so she, she has the creative, whereas I'm much more kind of practical and, and focused on the kind of the yeah. nuts and bolts and the details. So yeah. yeah, there's not much, there's not much crossover, you know, there's very obvious, there's very obvious things that I do and, and that she does. And so I, I do think, I do think that works well. I think yeah, it's important yeah. to be a team, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. So congratulations on building a cult brand, Grind, and also being married to a beautiful wife and um, being a dad very soon. By the time the podcast comes out, you would have been a dad already. But um, can you tell our listeners, (laughs) scary, isn't it? Can you tell our listeners um, a typical day in the life um, of you as CEO, David? Sure. I mean, if I, you know, assuming... Assuming I'm in London, which I am most of the time, then you know it nearly always starts with breakfast in in one of our locations because um, you know it's just the best way to start the day is with uh, with, with breakfast at Grind. Um, and I think I think I'll keep doing that for as long as I can. And then I think it's so varied. You know, we have our obviously I spend time visiting our sites and the teams. I spend time in our coffee roastery, which we're about to relocate again shortly, actually, because we've outgrown it. Um, you know, typically internal and external meetings, um, you know, basically whatever the next, you know, working on the next thing or, or catching up on the kind of the day-to-day with, with the guys who run the restaurant business and the guys that run the online business. Um, and then... Uh, you know, basically, it's it's working on working on the next thing. So, be that the next round of fundraising or the next project, or you know, how are we going to improve things? How are we going to move things forward? You know, how could we convert better on the website? How could we convert better in store? You know, I try. I'm not involved at all in, in the day to day operation of anything really. Um, so, it's nearly always stuff that is new. Um, yeah. whatever, whatever that might be. Um, and, but, but at the same time, you know, keeping an eye on the day to day and having the teams, having the teams kind of report on, on performance on a day to day basis. And then, yeah. you know, there's a lot, a lot of, a lot of stakeholders to manage from, you know, from our crowd investors to our high net worth investors, to our landlords, our bank, um, our board members, the senior team. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's the mad flurry of running around yeah, London yeah. and emails and phone calls and Slack and yeah, it's it's a lot. There's always, you know, particularly you know, particularly at the moment, there's a hundred balls in the air. So it's just you know trying to keep everything moving forward and trying to keep everyone yeah, on the same page. Basically, yeah, it's quite hard course. to describe, to be honest. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> if if um, you asked me the same question, I wouldn't be able to answer it because I'm like, um, I don't know, actually. It's hard to really describe it in one sentence or one word or what, even yeah. one paragraph because every day it's very different. And um, it, it sounds very much like you're very busy, but you kind of um, segment your time so that you can spend time on the future, planning for the future, which is why Grind is always ahead of the curve. That's what it sounds like to me. Um, I think that's, that's and, a nice way of putting it. <laughs> it sounds like you're a super busy man. And when um, you have your baby, how do you plan to balance family and business life? I've got no idea. 
I have no idea. Like, I'm going to try and. Uh, yeah, you'll figure then, uh, it out like everything else. Yeah, exactly, right? Like, I can have a few weeks off at the start and then figure it out. You know, luck- luckily, I live very close to. I live very close to some of our locations and very close to our office. And, you know, the amazing thing now is, you know, the whole business is in my phone in a lot of different ways. So, you know, I'm, I'm lucky to be able to be flexible with, with, with my time and to kind of set my own agenda as well. So I don't know, we'll figure it out. Yeah. And you know what? I think, I, I think in a way entrepreneurs are uh, the best, um, I think, position to be parents because I think having a baby is like having a startup. This is what, my, what I tell my husband all the time. You figure something out and then there's like new problems. Every, every yeah. month there's a new problem that you need to figure yeah. out. And then eventually they're, <laughs> eventually they're 18. <laughs> okay. Lastly, but not least, um, what would you tell your 20-year-old self, assuming that you're older than 20? I am older than 20. I'm 35 now, which is terrifying. (laughs) Um, What would I tell my 20-year-old self? Um, Just enjoy every moment of your 20s because, you know, it's just the best time ever. And, you know, just just back yourself. Don't worry about it because you're going to figure it out as you you grow. But I think that applies to... Yeah, yeah, that's such great advice. Yeah, such great advice. Back yourself. Yeah, great advice. Thank you so much, David. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Astrid and You Brand Lab podcast. If you enjoyed listening, please do make sure you like, subscribe, and leave a review. And to learn more about the Brand Lab, please come search on our website, astridandmute.com. Thank you.